You are listening to a podcast from The National. You don't have to be religious. You don't even have to be remotely spiritual to appreciate the power behind more than 2 million people, probably way more, chanting in prayer as they complete the pilgrimage of Hajj. Some simple math. The word God in Arabic is repeated a billion times every 17 minutes during this time. Hajj is an annual pilgrimage to the holiest city in Islam, Mecca. As one of the five pillars of Islam, Hajj must be performed at least once in a Muslim's lifetime, situation permitting. The pilgrimage takes about four days and includes jogging, shaving your head, scaling a mountain, and throwing rocks at Satan. For outsiders looking in, that might be it. Just a series of events that is mandatory for followers of a certain religion. But for outsiders, which is pretty much all non-Muslims because only Muslims are allowed to go to Hajj, they don't understand how profoundly impactful the completion of Hajj is. Muslims who have completed the journey emerge from Hajj completely transformed. They ascend to a higher state of holiness in Islam. Those returning from the pilgrimage are returned sinless as the day they were born. For many, this is the final step on their journey to heaven. Even on the way, hundreds of thousands of those who have completed Hajj return to their villages, to their cities, instantly having gained more respect in their respective societies and gaining the new honorific of Hajji, which means he who has completed Hajj. But that's not the story that's told. It's never the story of how, again, whether you're religious or not, people are literally taken out of depression after completing this event, of how men and women are all of a sudden given opportunity in their society because they are now, for the first time in their lives, respected for having achieved something. It's never those stories, because at Hedge End, we get stories in English of the Western journalists disguised as Muslims and sneaking into the holy sites in what I am sure is seen as a heroic feat of reporting in the West. It's always struck me a bit odd how Hedge gets covered in Western media. It's the stampedes, the logistical nightmares, the politicization of Hedge by other countries, and the chaos that happens as millions of people gather for the biggest gathering in the world. I'm not trying to discredit that or take away anything from the phenomenal reporting that has been done in Hedge from the likes of some of the biggest newspapers in the world. But they miss something huge, that for millions, Hajj, this pilgrimage, is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. For some, it's one of the biggest dreams of their lives. This is Beyond the Headlines, and I'm Nasr al-Wasmi, and today we're dedicating the entire episode to Hajj, the pilgrimage performed by millions of Muslims every year. To help explain the spiritual element of Hajj, I'm joined by Yusuf Jah a trainee mufti at Awqaf, the Ministry of Islamic Affairs here in the UAE. You've done Hajj, and I just wanted to get a little bit of what your experience was. Right, so uh, I did my Hajj in 2006, which was the last time that the day of Arafah was actually meant to have fallen on a Friday, on a Jummah. So Muslims would consider this to be quite auspicious, mainly because um, that's how the Hajj of the Prophet took place. So when he did his Hajj, it was on a Arafah was on a Friday, and also because Friday itself has a sort of a sort of auspiciousness to it. So when that's aligned with Arafah, it's sort of a double double sanctity. 
Um, my own Hajj had a bit of a journey to it, a story to it. Um, I was meant to go with a travel group and the travel group could not arrange our tickets in time. And so my friend who was organizing the travel group basically said, look, I can somehow get you a visa to go on Hajj, but it's too late to, for you to go with any official group to actually go on the journey itself from the UK. So the only option I had was to take my visa, fly into Jordan, and then to hop across the border via taxi. And this was a time when the Saudi regulations had already put in place that most people would have to go through an official caravan, official group. So I didn't. I had my visa and I hopped in over the, uh, across the border via Jordan with a Jordanian family, a mother and her son. And it was amazing because as we drove in to, it's, it's quite a uh, tiresome journey from Jordan. And you go, we decided to go via Medina, even though that's not a part of the Hajj, that's a, that's where the prophet is meant to be. And then the prophet uh, said that someone who does Hajj and doesn't visit me, it, there's this kind of a, a front and it sort of sets you into the spiritual mode. So we went via Medina, we went to Mecca and arriving at Mecca, there was this state of awe. So I left my Jordanian travel companions and set out and there's a, on record, there were about 4 million pilgrims that year. Um, but unofficially, because there's quite a few people who get in unofficially, you could probably add another 2 million or 3 million. So I arrived there and within that first hour, it was just before the Hajj started, I decided to go to the Kaaba and that's meant to be quite an auspicious thing to make a supplication when you first see the Kaaba. And as I arrived there, this awe set in because I thought, I haven't got a place to stay for the night. <laughs> so I've arrived here. And within that first hour, amongst three to four million people, I bump into one of my closest friends who plays, prays at the same mosque as me <laughs> in England, in Wilsdon Green. And he said, well, you've got a place to stay. I said, no, why don't you stay with me in the hotel room? So that was taken care of. And I found this state of just entrusting myself to God meant that all throughout things were taken care of. I mean, there was, and there has to be part and parcel of the Hajj, a state of tiresomeness. So I did spend a few nights in Mina and uh, uh, on the way in Arafah, literally sleeping on the floor. But uh, there was a real state of stripping away of myself and entrusting myself to God. Um, and of course, then the journey the implication becomes how much can you hold on to what you take from Hajj. Um, they say the, the journey of Hajj isn't a journey that it's a journey of a lifetime. So the implications of the meanings that you take from Hajj are meant to suffice you for the rest of your life. Speaking of the journey of a lifetime, there are, you know, as you said, there are millions of people that go to Hajj every year and many of those people cannot afford to go. So how do those people who cannot afford to perform Hajj achieve it? Are there systems in place in Islam and in the Quran to explain that? Well, at the outset, it's worth stating that when the Quran does stipulate that Muslims should go on Hajj, it does so with a caveat. So the Quran says, That Hajj to the Kaaba or to the house or sacred precincts is a duty upon those who, can, who are actually able to. And that ability implies both financial ability and physical ability. So, uh, frankly speaking, if one is not able to go on Hajj, then the obligation is not upon them. But the question then comes in that, what if a person um, is financially able, but for a whatever reason, maybe a chronic illness or a disability, knows that they can't go on that journey? 
And in such a situation, uh, Islam does allow for what's known as a proxy hajj or hajj al-badal, whereby they can actually uh, deputize someone else who's already done hajj before. So they, they're going on behalf of someone else to perform the hajj on their behalf. And obviously that implies all the expenses will be borne. So that's a way of someone fulfilling that desire of having that desire to perform the Hajj, uh, even if uh, uh, they can't physically, but they can financially. Um, but of course, this is not a get-out clause. This is when you have that desire. Otherwise, if you really and truly can't go on Hajj, then there, then that's fine. You know, the, it, it, There isn't a taxing that you have to do something that you can't do. But I mean, what about people who, you know, this is literally their their biggest dream in life. Uh, right. Is there anything that kind of, uh, is there like a fund that's provided or anything along those lines? Well, I mean, the symbolism of the Hajj is very much a microcosm. It's to symbolize what is a bigger picture of what should be the life's journey anyway. And that's actually why we find the Prophet equating the journey of Hajj to other acts of devotion. So the Prophet, for example, said that someone who goes to the mosque at the dawn prayer and prays in congregation and spends time remembering God until the sun rises and then prays again two units of prayer will have the same reward as someone going on hajj. Mm. Now, that's not to say, well, oh, I've done that. I don't need to go on hajj now. No, it's, 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 a, it's implying that the magnitude of that journey is meant to be a part and parcel of your everyday life. And to not relegate your big spiritual crescendo peak experience to something that you can or cannot do and forgetting that God is to be found in the everyday mundaneness of what it is you can do. And similarly, uh, there's many other statements of the prophet referring to going to the congregation, walking back and forth, and, and all of these things having a similar reward. So the, so the accent or the implicit uh, emphasis of Islam in this is to say that Hajj is just aligning you to what should you be, what should be your life purpose anyway. So as we make the journey towards the Kaaba, we do, shouldn't forget that Muslims have a connection to the Qibla, that direction anyway. And that direction, which literally could be said to be the center of the earth, that center of journeying to God, is something that Muslims face when they pray. It's something that Muslims have reverence for in general, that direction, because your life has to be a life of direction. I mean, one of the fr constant refrains in the Quran is, where are you headed? Because <laughs> if you don't have a point to your life, then your life becomes pointless. And it's that point that the Hajj is trying to line us to. And whether or not we go on that journey or not, doesn't mean that we don't base that point in our lives. Mm -hmm. And we don't make that a part and parcel of our lives. So... Could you explain to us this idea of ihram, the, the uh, spiritual state that you reach when you're entering Hajj? Right. So the ihram is something I alluded to. It's, it's actually a formal, uh, it's symbolized by a formal dawning of a, of a for men it's two patched, uh, uh, unstitched white cloths. Um, and it has a state of regulations uh, and stipulations, such as at that point, the person can cannot engage in sexual relations or intimate relations with his wife or so on, um, and vice versa for women as well. And uh, there's a heightened st state of sanctity. And at that point, it formally demarcates the point at which a person says, look, you know, I'm going this journey, but I'm now a pilgrim, i.e. I am now entering into that status, that focus, where am I pilgrim? So just as the journey is one-pointed and is going towards the, the, the Kaaba and then is all about God, making God the center of your life, you're physically entering into that state of renunciation where you're 
putting everything besides God to the side and saying, I'm going to physically enter into the state so I can spiritually bring about that state. So that is what the ihram literally symbolizes. Um, in your opinion, what do you think the opinions of Hajj is for non-Muslims, for Westerners seeing it from as afar as the largest gathering of people in the world? Well, it is the largest gathering of people in the world. I don't necessarily think it may be the largest religious gathering at all times. I think the Kumbh Mela, which is done for Hindus, which, which takes place maybe one once every decade, I think, maybe larger. But but in terms of a regular annual gathering, it is the largest gathering of people uh, in the world and is the largest gathering in terms of a spiritual pilgrimage. And I think what often we need, uh, what's often lost amidst the... Um, uh, negative press that Islam seems to get quite a lot nowadays is that the vast majority, or at least uh, of Muslims, who in turn make a significant portion of mankind itself, uh, are willing to lead or intending to lead God-abiding lives, which entails compassion for, for humanity at large. And that is one of the big lessons of, of the Hajj, because the pilgrimage is intended to bring you into this God-consciousness, and that God-consciousness in turn is meant to bring you into this connectedness with humanity and that responsibility as a steward. And what I find is that almost all world religions and almost all wisdom traditions of the world have a sense of the pilgrimage. In fact, the great American mythologist and uh, writer Joseph Campbell has a, uh, describes what he calls the monomyth, which is the big myth that underlines all the great world's civilizations. And that is what he calls the hero's journey, which is marked by this departure where the person, the hero sets off on this great pilgrimage to, to find something, the great elixir, whereby he's transformed. And that transformation takes place through the process of initiation, a series of rituals, a series of realizations. And having had those realizations... He doesn't just rest on his laurels and put his feet up and say, all right, I might as well chill. No, he takes that return back because he realizes that what he has has to be shared with others. And so we find parallels of that across the world traditions. In Buddhism, you'd have the sense of the bodhisattva, the person who's taken on the path of nirvana and having attained nirvana, he comes back to be a form of compassion to all sentient beings. And so it is with the Hajj. Because the idea is that having had that experience, once you come back, the Prophet actually said that the one who that the person who does Hajj and doesn't engage in any obscenities and does it for the sake of God comes back just as his mother gave birth to him. And that is an is an is an a reference to that state of innocence. But that state of innocence in adulthood. So it's that return to the goodly life. It's that return to that life of freedom that at some level of our core we all think, and most of us would readily associate that with our childhood, that state of just oneness, of just connection to everything. And that is meant to be the sign of someone who's attained Hajj because they've entered into the state of seeing God, a state of coming to know God, the state of understanding his great unicity, his great oneness, but also how that translates into this world of apparent multiplicity which entails that we live our lives as an embodiment of compassion and trust. And that's the sign of an accepted Hajj. We'll go further beyond the headlines in just a moment. But first, allow me to tell you about the Nationals' other podcast. Business Extra goes deeper into the movers and shakers that make the Middle East such an important financial hub in the world. And Extra Time, from our esteemed sports desk, is the best place to chat about the English Premier League and more. 
Subscribe to both shows as well as this one on iTunes or find us, as always, at thenational.ae. One of our former employees, Aisha Al-Mazrui, is now in Hajj. Aisha does not fall in the categories you'd expect. She's not old, on her last legs, she hasn't been saving her entire life, although she did have to save some to get to Mecca. Aisha is a 20-something-year-old practicing Emirati Muslim who felt that now is the right time to go. It's my first time doing Hajj. Uh, preparations, um, I didn't do many preparations, um, you know, because I've been to Umrah so many times and I, I kind of have an idea about what, what's, like, what is it like and also my father uh, has been a few times there to Hajj and some and we discussed with him what we need and like what we need to take i also asked other women uh, because maybe there is something that i need to keep in mind as a woman um i decided to go to hajj now because basically because it's the right time for me because uh, i don't have many responsibilities now i don't have like for let's say children so it's it's easier for me to go now um, and I it's also the right time because um, I have company like I have my I'm going with my father and my sister um, and it's you know it's it's something that we have we will have to do at least once in our lifetime and because I am I don't have any um, obstacle now, like I have the financial, uh, like the, the money to do it, I have the, the good company, I am healthy, I don't have like children and, and responsibilities, I just need to take time off from work and you know, I, I expect it to be difficult, yeah, of course, because it's going to be not like Umrah, and like Umrah, Umrah like is, is easier, but it's still, I still don't have that much of fears that it's, that I will struggle because, you know, I, I'm, I think I'm ready to, to do it and I can do whatever it takes uh, because, uh, you know, this is important to me. And I know that maybe it's it's my first and last time I will do it. So I'm ready, I'm ready, I think. I'm joined by Henin Dejani, one of our reporters at the National Desk. Uh, I'd like to thank her for joining us. Thanks, Henin. Thank you for having me. Hajia, uh, I, I can call you that now, right? Yes, of course, officially, since 2012. So you went, I, I know it's not easy, it's not even remotely close to being easy, uh, you're writing an article uh, on it this entire week. As we mentioned, there are millions of people who attend. So I just want to know, how do you manage the never-ending crowd? Uh, what tips would you give people going uh, in the future? Yeah, well, actually, it's uh, it's one of the biggest adventures a person can have. Um, I, I can't wait to do it again. I don't know if I'll survive again because it's a kind of a survivor <laughs> kind of thing to 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 get through it in, <laughs> in one piece. But... Um, the main thing is before going, one has to be really positive. You have to, you have to want to go. You have to know the value of of getting the chance to perform Hajj, 
And you just need to accept that anything that happens to you, any mishaps, you just need to find the funny side out of it all. <laughs> that was my trick. <laughs> so yeah, so, so it was really one of the greatest experiences I've had. I went there for 20 days. And as an adventure traveler, honestly, this was one of the most remarkable adventures I've had. So what I know you're a very, <laughs> very again, adventurous traveler. You've gone um, all around the world. I mean, what kind of uh, events happened there? Some some unique. Uh, yeah. Tidbits? Well, I mean, first of all, before going, any pilgrim would think they're gonna die, and that's what I thought because it's kind of terrifying once you hear about all the stampedes, once you hear about you know the things that happened, the long waits. Um, so first, when we arrived, um, we did the Umrah when when you first arrive, and I had two veteran pilgrims with me, you know, by my side. So so that so that was okay, and I thought, well, that wasn't so hard. And then just day by day, you just start to get through. Now, one of the most challenging things that we had to go through when we went from Arafah to Muzdalifah. Um, we had to go in the evening, like right after sunset, and. We were not wise to take the train station because obviously there were one million people trying to take the train. And um, it was just, we stood in line for maybe two hours, but that was not the worst part. After we managed to get on the train, we got stuck in the station between Muzdalifa and Arafah for five hours. And it was a place where we can't go out or we can't go forward and there was no water or food. So... So the nurses started fainting, which was kind of ironic because if the nurses are fainting, then what do we do? But anyway, what makes you get through is how people are willing to help. Everyone started taking out that extra orange they had. I took out my fan and face mist and donated it to the, you know, the person who was unconscious. And um, yeah, so it just it works out. Like even when we were there was a sort of stampede as we were getting on the train, and I fell between the platform and the train. So my foot just slipped and I fell. And then just one man grabbed me and put me inside. So you know, like people will just rush to help. I mean, I would have been one less person in the train, but yeah, they saved my life. I know you're you're very much into uh, you've written a lot of articles of, uh, for us about you know spiritual gatherings, uh, yoga, meditation, and obviously you write every week. Uh, you report on the khutbah, yeah. uh, which was actually given by uh, one of our guests earlier today. So, I just want to know how do you feel during, in terms of uh, maybe if you can explain to us, just what kind of mentality are you in, and then how do you feel right after you've completed it. Well, the mentality, first of all, is that uh, all Muslims believe that for you to get the chance to go to Hajj, you've been invited by Allah to, to, to get there. So, and for me, it was really very spontaneous how I went. So it, was, so it was a gift from God. I got the chance. Now, you know, I'm healthy. I'm young. I can enjoy it instead of, you know, be an elderly person who's struggling to do it. Well, we struggled anyway, but, you know, the difference is big. So anyway, so for me first, I was, you know, I appreciated being there. And I just wanted to be positive and enjoy every minute and, uh, you know, try to turn it into a positive experience. Now, once I was done, I mean, um, I really felt that there was, you know, th like there was a light coming out of my face, which uh, not only made me look more beautiful, but it was also, you know, <laughs> it was a good, uh, blessed feeling, I guess. So, yeah, it was it was really nice just feeling that you've accomplished the mission. And there's a panic attack, actually, that the pilgrim gets um, on the day of Arafah between afternoon prayers and Maghrib, because that's the time when we're supposed to dedicate it to doing prayers. And that's when you get accepted or not. 
it's that's when God accepts your Hajj, your pilgrimage or not. So for me, since noon until afternoon, I just couldn't focus. I was just it was just so hectic for me and I just couldn't sit and focus and pray. So in the afternoon, I started thinking, what if this is a sign that I'm not going to get accepted? And, you know, I've done all of this for nothing. And I just panicked. And it was so, you know, it was very, very, very emotional. And those emotions kind of, you know, they just make you feel that, okay, maybe I did do it right. Because, you know, I felt the moment afterwards. Do you think that, I mean, Western media, when they report Hajj, they only rep- report, you know, the stampedes that obviously happen, the, yeah. the, the really difficult toil it has on your body. But is there an element of reporting Hajj that isn't covered by Western media that maybe, you know, should be more discovered? Well, I would say maybe the spiritual side, you know, the spiritual humane side, you know, what every pilgrim is feeling, the value of what they're doing, the, you know, the symbolic elements behind everything. I mean, I mean, I'm sure they would refer to it generally, but, you know, to get more of the of the faith aspect of it. Did you feel was there a moment when you really felt a connection, a, a, a deeper spiritual state than you've been in before? Well, yeah, on the day of Arafah, definitely, before sunset. And um, I think also, you know, when I, f- when I first arrived, when we went to do the first Umrah, it was my first time in Mecca altogether. So, so obviously, you know, when you see the Kaaba, when you start doing, you know, these rituals, for me, it was the very first time. So it was a nice feeling. And when do you plan on going again? Inshallah, when I get the chance, as soon as possible. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'd like to thank Yusuf Ja, Hanin Dajani, and Aisha Al-Mazru'i for joining me today on this special podcast on Hajj. You can listen to this and all the other national podcasts on our website or on iTunes. This has been Beyond the Headlines. I'm Nasr al-Wasmi. Thank you for joining us and goodbye.